Well, turn with me, please, this morning to Romans chapter 8. In your New Testament scriptures, Romans chapter 8. Spent two weeks looking at Romans 7. Now we'll come into Romans 8, where we'll spend the next few Sundays together, again, making our way through this great book. Romans chapter 8 will introduce the chapter to us, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. So Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, and let us hear God's word. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to to the Spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, be our teacher this morning. We would long to sit at your feet. May nothing distract us right now from hearing your word. May we be learners, disciples, so that you might then send us out as your witnesses in this world. Give us that grace, we pray. And we thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What a wretched man I am. Who will free me from this body that is subject to death? Does that sound familiar? It's the anguished cry that culminated Paul's discussion of the law at the end of Romans chapter 7. Having discussed life under the law, life in bondage to sin and aggravated by the law, Paul gave this cry, a, a plea to the Lord to rescue him from this body of death. And as Paul did when telling the story of life under the law, he hinted at the story of Adam and Eve placed there in the garden and given the command not to eat. From the tree, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and experienced death. And he also hinted at the story of Israel's experience under the law. The law that promised them life. The covenant that was intended to give life only delivered death. Israel, having been rescued from Egypt and brought to Mount Sinai, what do they do? They make a golden calf. And death comes upon the people. They grumble against God in the wilderness. They come to the very edge of the promised land and the exploration committee votes 10 to 2. Do not try to take this land. It's unbelief there at the very border of God's promised land. They're excluded for a generation. And while they finally get in and God blesses them, eventually both the northern and the southern kingdom end up in exile in Assyria and Babylon. You just read the Old Testament from start to finish. You're constantly confronted by this cycle of sin and death. 
And God will rescue, and the people rebel, and God will rescue, and the people rebel. And sometimes reading the Old Testament, maybe you wonder, why so much darkness? Why so much failure? Why so much sin? Well, that's intentional. The author has shaped that story to teach us a very definite lesson. A lesson that life under the law results in sin and death. It's a story that plays out over and over again. It plays out in your life when you try to find life, when you try to find salvation by keeping the law. And again, the law is good, but we by nature are evil. And the law will only draw out of us wicked desires and actions. That's the story Paul told in Romans 7. And he did it in order to bring us to the same place he brought us at the end of Romans 3. Where our mouths are silenced. No excuses. Where the whole world is accountable to God. No exceptions. And where no one will be declared righteous by the works of the law. No escape, at least by our own deeds. So just as Paul brought us in Romans 3 to that point of transition where he would focus on the solution, Paul did the same thing in Romans 7. Bringing us to that cry, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, as we turn the page into Romans 8, it's time for the good news, friends. And Paul answers his own question. Who will rescue me? Verse 1 begins with the triumphant declaration. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. It's as if those of us in Christ were marching to the execution chamber and we've received a last minute stay of execution. But not only that, we've been cleared of our crimes and released from our prison. Now, how can this be, you might ask? How can the guilty grow free? How can God do this without a tragic miscarriage of divine justice? How can we obtain freedom from the law when the law only condemns us further? And what does this freedom mean for us who are set free, but we know the evil that we are capable of producing? Those are the questions that Paul answers. As he begins Romans 8, which is one of the most beloved chapters in all of the Bible. Well, as he enters this chapter, we'll start today by looking at verses 1 through 4, where Paul celebrates our freedom from condemnation. And we'll look at it under three aspects of our freedom. First, the significance of our freedom. What's the big deal about being free? Well, verse 1 establishes the main idea. Really for verses 1 to 4 our sermon today, but really almost for the whole chapter. And again, Paul declares, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Paul begins this magnificent chapter, he assures us those who are connected to Christ are freed from the condemnation of the law. And he will develop that theme again 
and again throughout Romans 8 until he concludes the chapter with this declaration. You may have heard it before. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a chapter that begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. So it's a chapter just brimming with hope, with assurance, with expectation for God's people. It's a priceless treasure. But what makes this treasure so beautiful? What makes these promises so significant? It's everything we spent the last two weeks unpacking. It's the significance of our state under sin that Paul developed in the previous chapter. And I won't repeat the messages, but just one more time. In Romans 7, verses 5 and 6, Paul set up this contrast. When we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And my argument was this, that Romans 7 develops the first part of that contrast. Romans 7 develops verse 5. This is what life is like in the realm of the flesh, dominated by the sinful passions aroused by the law. But now, now that we come into Romans 8, Paul is ready to develop the second half of the contrast, the promises that are celebrated in verse 6. And so here in Romans 8, Paul describes in detail our life in the Spirit. And notice that Paul himself indicates a transition. He writes, therefore, in verse 1, there is now no condemnation. Now that we have died to sin and the law that once bound us, now that we are in Christ and no longer in Adam, now we serve in the new way of the Spirit. So Paul hints at the Spirit there in Romans 7. You saw it referenced in the verses we read today. That was then, this is now. And so Romans 8 is going to give us this rich, this comprehensive, this full portrayal of what it means to be a Christian. Paul is now going to preach to his readers, the church of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what it means to live life in the Spirit. And the first aspect of our new life, the place where Paul begins is this. You are free from the condemnation of the law. Now that Christ has come. Now that he has accomplished salvation, and again, now that you are in him, there is no condemnation. You are free from the judicial penalty of sin. We've seen a strong legal emphasis in Romans, and that is what is at the forefront of the meaning of this term. The condemnation of the law, the penalty due to us for our sin, Paul says, no condemnation. He sums it up well over in Colossians 2. He says, God forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, 
which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Maybe at one time in your life you've been in debt financially, and it was a large debt, uh, one that would take so much work to overcome. Just multiply that by infinity. And think about the record of sins that could be compiled against you. And then add to that all the ones that nobody knows about. Think of all the secret temptations and the sins that would embarrass us if people knew. Don't minimize your sin. Think of how deep and horrible it is. That record, that person, that condemnation has been taken away. God nailed it to the cross so that he could pronounce over you this sentence, no condemnation. And as we will see in verse 4, it's not only that you're back on neutral standing. Okay, you're free from the penalty. Paul will fill in the picture when we get to Romans 4 and show us God also accepts us as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ credited to us. And so John Calvin writes this, the trembling consciences of the godly have an invincible fortress, for they know that while they abide in Christ, they are beyond every danger of condemnation. And that's a fortress that while you hide in that place, no enemy will ever breach. And that's a significant freedom from the condemnation of the law. But again, how can God do this? How can God do this and still be just? Well, that's the question the next verses answer. Verses 2 to 3 focus on that where Paul explains the means of our freedom. Or how do we get this freedom? Who and what brought it about? Well, Paul highlights two agents who are responsible for our freedom from condemnation, Christ and the Holy Spirit. And Paul takes them in reverse order. He starts with the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Through Christ, Christ never far from any consideration of Paul, but through Christ, the Spirit has freed you from sin and death. Now, I want you to notice how Paul makes his point. He uses the word law. He uses the word law playfully in order to make a point about the Spirit. We already know the law can't save. Paul made that point crystal clear in chapter 7. In fact, he concluded chapter 7 by writing, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So the state of a person under the law is one of conflict. You've got the law of the mind, the desire to do right, but it's enslaved to the law of sin. There's a power of sin within you that always conquers the desire to do right. And God's covenant comes along, and Paul says it just stirs up the conflict between the two. So with all that focus on law, Paul is using a play on words. He'll use law to refer not only to the commands or the covenant, but to principles or powers. You've got the principle of the law versus the power of sin. How will we solve that dilemma? Well, here Paul finally solves the dilemma. 
And he uses this play on words to tell us how. Verse 2, when he refers to the law of the Spirit, again, there's that playful reference to the law. He's referring to the Spirit himself. But it's like Paul is saying, I'll tell you what law we need. We need the law that is the power that is God's Spirit. That is the principle that will save. That's the law that will free you from the law of sin and death. And this is something that God promised his people long ago. Don't get me wrong, when we paint the old covenant as a reign of sin and death, it doesn't mean no one got saved, there was no grace, not at all. But there is a heavy emphasis on condemnation in order to prepare God's people for the coming of Christ. But even amidst that sin and death, the gospel was promised and even enjoyed. So in Deuteronomy 36, God promises, one day I'll circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love God with all your heart and with all your soul and live. God says, I'm going to do something for you on the inside. And that language keeps getting repeated throughout the Old Testament. And then it gets tied to other language, the language of a new covenant, the language of God saving his people, the language of God regathering his people, and here you go, the language of God sending his spirit. Who will renew and save God's people? God's spirit will save God's people. And so the Spirit brings about the salvation that God has promised. The law of the Spirit of life sets you free from the law of sin and death. And when God does this, by the way, he's fulfilling all those Old Testament promises. So the Old Testament promised resurrection. Well, God's resurrected you. Not bodily, not yet. But he's begun the work of resurrection in your heart because he gave you a new heart. He's begun his work of new creation by making you a new creation in Christ. He's gathering the scattered exiles by circumcising your heart and making you a Jew on the inside. All of those promises are being realized as the Spirit gives life, as he frees us from the power of sin and death. So that's the first agent that has brought about no condemnation. And so Paul then names the second agent in verse 3. And there he writes, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. And one more time, Paul hooks in with the argument from Romans 7. The law was powerless. Why? Because it weakened, it was weakened by the flesh. No problem with the law. The problem is with us. We are fleshly, opposed to the spiritual. And so we do not keep God's law. But this then is where the passage highlights the grace of God. Even though the problem is with us, God provides the solution. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son. 
Maybe you've heard that old phrase, God helps those who help themselves. I thought about naming the sermon, God helps those who cannot help themselves. Because what we could not do for ourselves, God did by sending his son. And so what did he do? What did he send Christ to do? Well, the text says God sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Now, by the way, when you see the word likeness, the likeness of sinful flesh, I don't think Paul is saying Christ only looked like a human. He only appeared to be a human. No, notice Paul writes sinful flesh. And I think that's where the word likeness is focused. Christ only appeared to be a sinful human. He was a human. But don't think that being human, he was sinful. He was a perfect human and therefore qualified to be our sin offering. Remember, your Old Testament offerings had to be unblemished. Well, that is Christ. We are the sinners. And that's the problem. We have sinned. So God gives us a sinless sacrifice on our behalf. And what does this sacrifice do? He condemns sin in the flesh. We stand condemned by the law. Christ stands righteous before the law. But instead of condemning us, God condemns sin. He condemns sin through Christ so that we might hear God say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, that's grace. That is the gospel. And notice before we leave this, Paul's phrase, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, what's the problem with humans again? We are fleshly, Paul says, unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. As he said in Romans 7, good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. So there's the problem. So what does God do? He condemns sin in the flesh. In the very place where the problem lies, God acts. So just know this about your Savior. He's He moves towards sinners and their sin. And wherever the problem is, that is where you will find Jesus. Not moving away from you, not moving away from the problem, but moving towards you in order to solve the problem. So essentially, Paul has shown us in these two chapters, God did this work of of concentrating sin in Israel. And that's not to say the world isn't sinful, but it's to say that God God is shining the spotlight on Israel. He gave them the law in order to highlight their sin, to shine that light there brightly. But he shined the light there so that we could see, well, I'm sinful like them. I'm part of that nation. Adam is in me too. And so then, with the spotlight focus on Israel's sin, with the spotlight focus where sin is concentrated... That's where God provides the solution. And from within that sinful nation, God raises up the solution. Within the sinful nation, God provides 
the faithful Messiah, Jesus, a faithful Israelite who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And who then, having done that all those years faithfully in the wilderness, in the temple, as a young man, having lived life faithfully in our place, then he experiences condemnation. Sin gets condemned in his flesh. He dies as the sin offering. And then we hear God say, you are no longer condemned. As Isaiah 53, 5 reads, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And so Paul solves the problem of, hey, you're wondering what was going on in the Old Testament? God was preparing us for the gift of the Spirit. And what's going on legally that God could set us free? Someone has been condemned for us. So God is faithful, God is just, and God is gracious with the result that we go free. So friends, do you know this gift of no condemnation in Christ? Because the record of the scriptures, the promise of God, is that those in Christ are free from the condemnation of the law. They are free from the power of sin and death. They are accepted in God's sight because of the righteousness of Christ credited to them. And that sin enemy, he's been excluded. He's been punished. God has crushed his head. He can't come back for payment. He can't come back and say, I'll decide who is and isn't in Christ. No, Christ has settled that by his faithful work. So again, as Calvin writes, he took our curse and has freely granted us his blessing. That's how we're free. So let's look lastly now at the results of our freedom. Verse 4 reads, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now that God has acted in Christ and the Spirit to free us from the condemnation of sin and to condemn sin in the flesh, how does that affect us? Well, Paul highlights two results of our freedom in this verse. And one is related to our position, and the other is related to our lifestyle. So first, our position. Paul says, God condemned sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Now, there are two ways we could read this phrase. On the one hand, we could read it as saying that since Christians are free from the power of sin, they obey the righteous requirements of the law. Now, that is true Theologically, you will find that in the Bible. And that could be what this verse is saying. And I'm giving you this option because while it's good to usually just decide what is the verse saying and and present that view in a sermon, this is one of those places it's really hard to decide which is the right interpretation. And it doesn't help that both fit 
what the Bible says elsewhere. So that's one way of reading that phrase. The second reading is to understand Paul as saying this, because of the perfect life and death of Jesus Christ, believers are regarded as having perfectly satisfied the law. So because the righteousness of Christ is credited to us, the righteous requirement of the law is fully met in us. And I think this is the better reading. So while Christians do obey God's commandments, we'll see that in Romans 8 and Romans 13, we do not fully meet the requirements of the law through our obedience. We still fall short. And further, notice it's a passive verb, might be fully met. So it just sounds like Paul is describing something that is done for us not something that we do. And so one commentator sums it up like this. As our substitute, Christ satisfied the righteous requirement of the law, living a life of perfect submission to God, and laying upon him the condemnation due all of us. God also made it possible for the righteous obedience that Christ had earned to be transferred to us. And that is our standing. That is why we are free from condemnation. So I think the first part of verse 4 refers to our position. But I do think the last part of verse 4 refers to our obedience. When Paul says, Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, Whom does God regard as righteous in his sight? Or how do you identify what are the marks of those who have faith and who have this righteous status? Those who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is the lifestyle that accompanies or flows from those who are free from condemnation. And again, this fits very much the flow of thought in Romans 7 and here in Romans 8. We are condemned by the law legally. And how does that manifest itself? Sinful passions. So now that we are free from condemnation, we are free from slavery to our sinful passions. And so we live the life of the Spirit. We do not live the life of those who are unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So what this means, and again, the rest of Romans 8 will will flesh this out in much more detail. But what this means, by the way, is all Christians have the Spirit. So Paul is not in Romans 8 describing a special class of Christians, those who happen to have the Spirit. No, Christians All Christians have the Spirit, and so they live in accordance with the Spirit. And so, as we bring the message to a close, how do you identify those who are Spirit-filled? Or better yet, could you describe yourself as Spirit-filled? And I know we might resist that. It might feel funny to answer a question like that 
with the answer yes, because we don't want to boast in God's sight. We don't want to look like we think we're earning anything from God, and, and that's an appropriate concern. But God does say that his people will not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So do you walk according to the Spirit? Do you see evidence of the Spirit's work in you? And Galatians 5, for starters, tells us what the Spirit's work looks like. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the life of those who walk according to the Spirit. And Galatians also tells us what kinds of deeds the Spirit puts to death. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like— And I know, by the way, when we read that list of sins, and some of those sins show up really quickly on our radar, don't they? Particularly the ones dealing with immorality, and they ought to. But don't fail to be on the lookout for sins that tend to fly under the radar. Discord, jealousy, dissensions, factions, envy, all of those must be put to death by the work of God's Spirit. And that's what God will do in you as you walk with him. And so as we close, we might ask this question lastly. You think of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. All of the law and the prophets say, do unto others as you would want others to do unto you. And sometimes when I read a passage, I think, okay, how would I obey that command in the light of this passage? And so we could ask ourselves, what do we want from God? And what do we want from others when we sin? We want mercy, not condemnation. And what do we get from God when we sin and repent? We get mercy, not condemnation. So therefore, we if we are to do unto others as we want others and God to do to us, then part of the transforming life of the Spirit would be we show mercy as our Heavenly Father is merciful. So, friends, no condemnation. That is God's pronouncement over you if you are in Christ. No matter what friends say, no matter what family says, no matter what those condemning voices in your heart or in your mind or in the world say, in Christ, we have freedom from condemnation. So listen to that phrase. Listen to that pronouncement. As you live your life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the mercies of the Lord Jesus. We should sit here humbly and quietly for a moment simply to thank you for saving our souls and showing us mercy. We give you our sincere thanks, praise, and adoration. And pray that you would forgive us of the sins we have committed and the sins we still commit. And give to your people here, Lord, we we would humbly ask, we'd only ask this because you promise it. Give us an understanding of ourselves as those who are not condemned. And may that transform how we view you, how we view ourselves, 
May it bring a real lived freedom and joy to your people. And so, Father, also then give us, along with that, as as an expression of that, as a natural result of that, by your Spirit, give us that transformed life. Give us that life of the Spirit that puts to death the deeds of the body and joyfully submits to God's law and God's commands. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.